Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening, everybody. This is Kelly, and welcome to Kelly Outdoors. Um, the show is being broadcast to you live from the middle of the entire civilized free world, Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, maybe not the middle of the entire civilized free world, but it's my world. Okay, tonight we have a very special guest with us. His name is Joe Lairs, and Joe has been making duck calls out on the West Coast since 1985. Uh, there's a lot more to Joe than making duck calls, okay? Um, I, I spoke with him tonight for about an hour on the phone. Um, this is the second time we've talked. And, uh, you know, Joe, there's there's a lot uh, there, there's a lot to Joe that, that people just don't know about, okay? Um, and I'm going to let him tell his story, you know, here in a little bit. Um, but, uh, like I said, there's a lot more to Joe than duck calls, Okay. Um, first of all, I just want to send a big shout out to Dave at the Refuge. Uh, check your PMs and your email, man. I'm, I'm <laughs> I've been sending you stuff out the wazoo. Okay, uh, you need to get back in touch with me about that stuff. All the guys on the Refuge that have that have been very instrumental in sending in um, ideas about the show, I really appreciate it. And just keep it up. I do. I really appreciate it. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. Um, the guys at Midwest Hunting Supply. Uh, thanks for your input there, uh, Harvey and Todd over at the other site that I that I mention all the time on the show, and I'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, again, thanks for all your support, and the, the the guys on that website are fantastic. You know, nothing but good stuff going out to you guys. Um, you know, a couple shows ago, I I was flying solo on here, and I talked about you know getting kids out in the outdoors and enjoying stuff and having a good time, and rabbit hunting seemed to be you know my topic of the moment. Um, to everybody out there, and I'm, I'm talking about the guys up in Illinois that sent me stuff, the guy from Wisconsin, uh, the folks from over Missouri, eastern Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, that, that sent me in uh, feedback on that and the pictures. Thanks a bunch. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you guys actually listened to what I said and, you know, took the kids rabbit hunting. It's it's a no-brainer. It's a lot of fun, and good Lord, uh, it, it's a way to get kids excited about doing stuff in the outdoors, Okay. Thanks again. I really appreciate it, and uh, it makes me it makes me feel good knowing that somebody's actually listening to me besides my mom. You know. <laughs> so, anyway, guys, um, I've got Joe here right now, and uh, we're going to start talking to Joe about when he what he what what actually got him going into the duck call business. Joe, welcome to the show, and thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate your time, bud. Thank you for having me, Kelly, uh, and good evening to everybody out there. What I what I'd like for you to to tell people. I mean, you told me something tonight that, and I I told you it just it was awesome. Um, how old were you when you found your passion for machining and working with machines and and doing what it is you do now? Well, my mother advised me when I was thirteen, ready to go into high school, that they had an open house and I should go down there and decide what I wanted to do with my life. So I staggered into a building, not knowing where I was on the, the local high school, and uh, what did I do <clears throat> but walk into the machine shop. Well, at 11 o'clock that night, they kicked me out, and I went home. And the next morning for breakfast, my mother said, well, what did you learn about what you're going to do? And I said, I'm going to be in manufacturing of some sort. She said, well, what do you mean by that? And I explained it to her. And she said, well, what else did you learn? And I said, well... Really, nothing else, Mom. That's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And she said, well, that's impossible. That's that's not possible at all. And, well, she died four years ago at 96, and she says, 
I can't believe the only things you've never done in your life or the things that you haven't done that you didn't follow the machine shop curriculum as when you were forced to, whether it was the merchant marine or the service or whatever. But otherwise, I've been here <clears throat> my entire life, and I love every minute of it. That That is awesome. I mean, there, there are so many people out there floundering around trying to find out their life's calling, uh, you know, at, at my age, you know, at 50-something. And uh, for you to be able to find what you wanted to do and that you felt your passion about at 13 and that you held on to it, that's <laughs> just, that's incredible. And, I mean, you, you were telling me about when did you actually start your first paying job? You know, when how old were you when you had your first paying job? <clears throat> well, yeah, you're talking about a regular job, not caddying at the golf course and that right, sort of thing. Right, right, right. Well, uh, after my first year in, in vocational classes, in uh, Sequoia High School in Redwood City, uh, I said to my buddy that I uh, grew up with, let's go out and see if we can't find a job this summer. Well, of course, this was the first part of the war, and there was a big demand for everybody and everything. So we cruised all around San Francisco and South San Francisco and up and down the peninsula. Well, there was only two machine shops on the whole peninsula at that time, between San Francisco and San Jose. But anyhow, on the way back from checking out San Francisco, we saw this old building in South San Francisco, and I said, Mutual Engineering, let's go take a look in there. So we went in, and this gentleman greeted us at the door, said he was the foreman, his name was Mr. Snyder, and uh, was the son of the owners, and that he ran the operation, and what can I do for you? And we said, well, we're high school students uh, involved in the machine shop curricula, and we'd like to find a job for the summer. So he said, well, are you any good? We said, well, we think we are, but we don't really know. We've never been tested. <laughs> so he says, well, I'll tell you what you do. He says, you'll be here at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, and I'll put you through the paces, and if you can handle it, you got a job, and if not, I'll tell you to get the hell out of here. So the next morning we were there like a half hour, 45 minutes early, and he put us on the job single-point machining uh, threads, and it was a production job, and John Conterno and myself dove into these things, and we, as we quite often did, we raced each other all day to see who could make the, many, the most parts, and boss came back, and he said, uh, well, how are you guys doing? I said, well, those are the ones I've done. He said, oh, that's impossible, and we said, well, John's pile was there, and I'm here within four or five of the same amount, and he said, that's fantastic. I can tell you right now, you got a steady job. So at the end of the summer, uh, George came up to me and he says, I like what you do. He says, why don't you go to your counselors and see if you can't get a situation whereby you work four hours a day in the shop and then go to school in the afternoons and uh, uh, you could work Saturdays and Sundays here because the war effort uh, was going on, ongoing and needed everybody's help. So I did that for until I graduated from high school, worked Saturdays and Sundays and and uh, four hours each day, so that when I was 18 years old, I had served my tool and die maker and machinist apprenticeship. Well, now, one day, excuse me, go ahead. When, when you're talking about the war effort, just for the listeners out there to be clear, we're talking about the Second World War, okay? The only war I know. Exactly. How, how old were you when you started working in the machine shop? Well, I was... I would be uh, 14 years old. 14. I In the machine shop in school, I was 13. and Well, I started school in the fall, and I was 13 on 
May the second. Okay. I just, you know, I I marveled at that. And, you know, I have, I I think I told you earlier, I have a daughter that's in college. I mean, she's had jobs, all right. Um, but but kids these days, when when they go out and get a job, um, it's like, uh, you know, I have a job. Blah, blah, blah. But you know what? You know, you were you were talking about that, and it was just you were so passionate about it. You know, when we talked earlier. I was just amazed, uh, honestly. That if you were to tell your story to a, to a classroom full of kids today in a high school that were 13 and 14 years old about you going out and working four hours a day at a machine shop, and then Saturdays and Sundays, you know, in order to do what what you were passionate about, they would look at you like you were an alien life form, you know. <laughs> and, and and that's sad. That truly is sad. I mean, the the character of your generation, my father's generation, if I will. Um, it, it it's it's sorely missed today. It's sorely missed. Anyway, that's I'm, I'm done with that tangent. But um, so you you started off there. Um, you went into Merchant Marines. You, you played around out there in the ocean for a while and had a good time and became a marine engineer. Uh huh. In the engine room, which is another thing that uh, that gave me impetus in the in the in the mechanical field. And then you, the war was over, you came back home, you got married. Now, was was the woman you married, was she your high school sweetheart? No. In fact, uh, I met my wife when I was about 18, 19 years old, married at 22. We were married for 19 years, and she was, she passed away, I was widowed. And then about a year and a half later, I found an old friend of mine who I went to school with and had dated many times on occasions uh, before I met my wife. And we've been married. We just had our 40th anniversary, uh, the 4th of, uh, or the uh, Valentine's Day, the 14th of uh, February. So right. I've been married something like uh, a long time. <laughs> when, 19 and, and 40, so... Something like a long time? <laughs> something like a long time. <laughs> I'm going to write that down because that's a good one there. <laughs> and then, and then you were in. You know, Doc Hall was on last week, and he talked about knowing you from from the days when he was a dentist and using your equipment and stuff. Um, I was going to call him and ask him if he was aware of that. That's interesting. What's that? I said I was going to call him and ask him if he was aware of my dental product line. Yeah, he he knew all about it. I mean, he you know he and I we talked for a long time before the show. And he told me all about you, uh, as far as you know your your dental equipment and stuff. He knew about your your history and that, and what you did. And uh, he used some of your stuff, apparently, uh, or he, he knew about your stuff, I should say. Um, but you know that was kind of interesting that you know it's it's you know his background as far as being a dentist and your background as far as being a machinist. I can see where yours would lead uh, more into a segue of call making than his would, you know. Um, but it, it, it's kind of it, it's a small community. I mean, we talked about some stories earlier about how small a world it is. You know, um, where, when you were in the Merchant Marines and you were just a kid. I mean, from California and and finding half of your uh, buddies from your hometown out there in a small island in the South Pacific was just, I mean, <laughs> just you know, incredible. Um, I I think that's it's just kind of cool. It's a small world, but you know. Uh, you you were in the machining business. Uh, you, you were there for the for the wild ride through the Silicon Valley deal in California, and uh, then in 1985 you retired. 
and tell us what happened then. Well, the first thing I did was go hunting and fishing every day for about six, seven months, and I woke up one morning and said, I don't care if I hunt or fish again. <laughs> <laughs> you can get tired of ice cream, prime rib, anything you'd like if you do it too much. So about that time, a friend of mine called me from Silicon Valley and said, my shop is up for sale. Do you know anybody who's interested? I said, well, how much do you want for it, Frank? And he told me. I said, yeah, ship it in six weeks. He says, to who? I said, to me. He said, you just retired. I said, well, I just unretired. Why six weeks? I said, I have to build a shop for it. Well, we were living in Paradise, California at the time, which is about 14 miles up the Sierra's way, so to speak, from Chico. And... Uh, I rebuilt the garage, extended it out, and uh, set the shop up. And the first thing I did was start fiddling around, cutting wooden calls. And it was a long learning curve. As, mm-hmm. as everybody knows, no written text. You either copy or you go it the hard way, and I did it the hard way. I wasn't interested in what anybody else did. I wanted to see what made the thing tick. Right. So now, you know, for, for the listeners out there, you didn't start making duck calls because you needed the income. No, you you right. started doing this because you just wanted to have something to do, right? Exactly. Okay. Something to do with my hands. Right. And so 1985, you started out making duck calls. And how how long did it take you before you finally established uh, you, your line of calls as the call on the West Coast? I mean... Everybody that I know out there in California and everybody I've talked to, I mean, it's just like, layers this, layers that, layers. You know, don't take this the wrong way, Joe, but it's like those people have never heard of anybody that makes duck calls besides you. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you've obviously done a great job of marketing your product, but um, it's just, it, it's nothing short of amazing. I mean, and, and you've got almost like a cult-like following. I mean, that's not a bad thing. Well, it's it's worked out very well, and, and you know, as talked about on the forum all the time, uh, people that are, try to be good guys and service their people and uh, pay attention to what the industry needs and wants and service, 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 that's what it's all about. Right. And if you do that, you're going to make a lot of friends, and they are going to be a lot of followers if your product is worthy of it. And well, what would you say is is your number one selling duck call? Well, today would have to be the hybrid. Uh, it's the uh, we started out making the A5, and then eventually got to a timber call, and then we had a lot of people asking us about a call that was somewhere in between because they couldn't afford more than one Laris call at the time, mm-hmm. uh, at any time. So they wanted something that would do everything. So I came up with the hybrid, and that was named incidentally by the people on the on the forum they started calling it the hybrid the hybrid so i i called it the hybrid from then on and uh today it outsells the uh the uh, a5 and the timber about three to one so it's it's done very well in a couple of years and it's still that niche that people were asking for Mm -hmm. i'm looking at your website right now and uh uh the hybrid You've got one a picture of it up there with the with the box elder, mm-hmm. you know that is an absolutely beautiful call, and also the redwood. That that is one of those calls that um, it, it reminds me of, uh, and, and don't take this the wrong way, but you know how when you get like silicone and paint on a car, 
and, and you get the little fish eyes going on. Mm-hmm. That redwood, that's what that looks like, you know. And that that is just an awesome looking call. Redwood lends itself very well to calls, providing it is that that it is uh, stabilized. Otherwise, uh-huh. it's entirely too soft. But once it's stabilized, it makes a great call, and it's beautiful, as, as particularly if you have a uh, have a, a way of obtaining the the real good redwood. You know, they call it lace redwood, and it's uh, just has a lot of eyes, like an emboya piece of wood that's just right. speckled with eyes all over. Yeah, that's that's what this one is. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. I mean, you know, and and when you talk about the guys on the refuge, I mean, um, man, there there's there's some guys on there that are just extremely opinionated about their calls and their call makers, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if you talk to anybody, and I, I don't mean the people that are typing up their their comments, their their suggestions, or whatever, but I'm talking with you, actually talk to them. Um, they absolutely just think your calls are it, you know. Um, and this is not something that you went into with, with, you know, like I did, honestly. I mean, when I started doing this five years ago, six years ago, whatever it was, um, all I did was take some calls that I already had and start reverse engineering them and, you know, cutting them out and, and doing what I was doing. Um, you kind of approach this from a standpoint of you, you've done everything, you're there, you're you're happy, your your life's been pretty successful, um, you know, you're retired, and then all of a sudden you get a wild bug up your fanny, and you decide you're going to start making duck calls, you know. <laughs> and you and you approached it from an entirely different standpoint of, okay, I know everything that I've used so far is is like this, and what I want to do is something different, and I want it to be more like this, you know. How did you come up with your design? I mean, that's the thing. When I hear about Alaris calls, it, it's it's the design, it's the concept, it's it's the whole thing. How did you come up with that? Well, I guess I perceived it as a as a uh, engineering problem, and uh, I knew from my hunting experiences over the years that I never wanted to see the day that a call stuck. I never ever wanted to lose an insert. I never wanted it to change tones because of the saliva. I wanted it to be interchangeable 100%, whether it was 50 or 100 or 500 parts. I wanted it so simple that one who never seen the call before with instructions over the telephone could learn to take the call apart and put it back together in less than a minute and have it perfectly tuned because all you have to do is push everything to the bottom and their hard stops, whether it's the insert and the match with the tone board and the reed that sits to the bottom, the wedge block goes to the bottom, and then you put the insert in uh, over the, uh, or I mean the insert into the barrel and that bottoms out. So everything goes to the bottom. If you can do that, the call will assemble itself in closer than a thousandth of an inch. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we never, never, ever tune calls. We make them so precisely that every call we put together is automatically in tune, whether it's blowing one of several reeds. doesn't make any difference. Interchangeable completely. The only thing you have to look for is that your reed is straight. If it's not straight, it'll tell you so, particularly hmm. on the high end. Right. Now, you know, you were talking to me earlier about, you know, you've got one shop that has all your CNC stuff in it and all that, right? And then you have another shop that you call your prototype shop? Is that right? Well, no, I don't have two shops. My son has my original shop in the Dell business. I have nothing to do with it anymore. He, uh, It's his business entirely. He, uh, I had a, uh, two brothers involved in the business with me. 
And uh, when I retired, he eventually bought both of them out, and he has the whole thing now. He has had it for 23, 24 years, I guess. And uh, uh, when I bought my first two CNC's, there's no way I could put them in my shop. I'm wall-to-wall machinery now. So I said to my son, you owe me, move over. I'm bringing two machines in. And he says, give me a couple days. And called me two days. He says, I've rearranged 30% of the shop to accommodate your machines in there. you got your own little section. Good luck. So I've had them in there ever since. And, of course, I have the advantage of my son has... Oh, he has $500,000 CNC's, uh, 12-axis machines. It'll practically cook eggs and bacon and give you coffee if you'd like. It's just complete machines, absolutely beautiful to watch. Uh, And I don't have the need for that in the duck call except for one part, and that is my uh, tone board. That is made completely on a CNC, 100% dropped off complete without any secondary operation on it. Now that takes a 12-axis machine to do that. That's providing the curves, the coordinates, the milling of the channels, uh, the the whole nine yards. It's a phenomenal machine, but it's part of the success of what I'm doing in that that I can repeat these things. Uh, I make a thousand soundboards at a time. Never, never, never have we rejected one. They just all are sisters, one after another. You know, so you we have something. the advantage of having this complete shop and uh, for anything special that we have like that. Right. You know, you said something earlier um, that my train of thought just derailed here. Um, that when you're when when you're doing these, okay, it doesn't matter what call it's for as far as the inserts and stuff. All the parts are interchangeable. That's correct. That that was part of the 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 genius of the genesis of the of the layers thing, you know. Well, it's a very common thing in industry. I mean, you know, uh, there are many 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 products on the market that not, have to have complete. Not true. Not true. Look at General Motors. I mean, they've they've got all these different cars that that fall under the General Motors umbrella. <laughs> well, there again, that's because they're different models. You know, that's like yeah. saying that the A5 is a completely different animal than the than the timber or the hybrid. Well, yes, and it's function and sound, but basically it's still the same instrument. Right. As most people know, I use the same soundboard. It's so well designed that it blows the A5, the hybrid, and the timber all equally as well. I don't know if you were aware of that or not, but uh, no. uh, no. the, the economies of scale. You know, you, if you make one, it costs you so much. If you make ten, they're cheaper to make for yourself. Right, you can put more effort into them. So, so what what is the what is the difference between the, the those? You know, between the hybrid the, the well, the difference is is in the length of the barrel, the diameters, okay. the uh, the uh, inserts, uh, you know, the tapers, uh, the length, the back pressure. I mean, it's all part of the thing, even mm-hmm. to the point where uh, one time we made a modification for looks on the T1 timber. And uh, we found that uh, we lost part of the tone because apparently, and this is something nobody considers it usually, it just happens, there's a point where you get the proper resonance out of, out of a piece of material, and there's a point where it diminishes. And uh, whatever that shape is, you could have it or you could not have it. And a lot of people don't realize that, but the, you know, the whole call is really an instrument that's... Uh, 
and well it's 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 based on all its components in other words not one part does it all mhm let me ask you a question all right at the end of your very successful uh career with your machining all right i mean i mean your company was doing stuff in the in the dental industry at the end of that 500,000 rpm turbines exactly i mean you we're we're talking about you went out on top of the world okay you really truly did what possessed you to go into making duck calls? I mean, of all the things you could have done and played around with and farted around with and made in your machine shop or, you know, whatever you could have done, what possessed you to go into making duck calls? Well, it has nothing to do with money. It has love of the game, as we say. You know, it... Uh, love of the sport? If you're a duck hunter, you're so passionate about it, nothing else really happens or it means much. Exactly. And uh, I take the call part of it that seriously although i'm not the best caller in the world uh because i never get time to practice i tune thousands of calls by blowing them making sure they hit every note but as far as putting a routine together i never have time for that i just blow call ducks you know uh, the young man that works for me brett crow is, is a master at it uh, right but his whole life is based around calling and and seven years in school <laughs> right yeah, we we talked about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I it's just it's just amazing. I mean, of all the different paths you could have chosen to go down, you know, you you chose to go down the one with the duck calls. I think I, that that's just totally cool. Hey, just just kind of skipping away from the duck calls real quick. Tell me about your 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 goose call and and some of the new things you got coming on the horizon with the goose call. Uh, you mentioned some dowels. Yes, I mentioned to you that uh, we came out with an innovation several months ago now on our short read goose call, and we know what a problem it is for people to uh, out in the field to be able to uh, change a read or to tune a call. Uh, if one goes out on a typical day of honker hunting, we'll call it, and the birds are not responding for whatever reason, and you wanted to change the pitch, you wouldn't think about changing it out there in the field for the average person because your day's hunt would be gone. And right. most guides that have to make a living on it tell me they got two or three toned calls so for different things. So uh, that being a problem that uh, bugged me for a long time, and I thought, how can we do this? Now, I used to make them close to the stops, but you still had to adjust the read to some degree. So now... Uh, on this CNC machine, the way we make it now, we also jig machine two holes that are 46 thousandths in diameter on the rails of the soundboard, or tone board, as some people like to call it. And they are placed probably within two to three tenths of a thousand in accuracy from the radius of the channel to the position of these uh, two pins. And then we made a die that uh, that punches the the reeds with those two holes in respect to the same tolerances to the radius of the reed, and we can interchange the reeds in a matter of 15 seconds more or less, and the call is always in tune. But the significant part about it is, if you're out there in the field and the birds are not working, and you think, well, I've got it set pretty high, now let's go to the other extreme. That's like a 15-second operation. All you have to do is crank the uh, the uh, soundboard to break the wedge block loose, shift it according to the grooves that everybody puts on the sides of their tone boards, and uh, 
in or out, whichever the case may be. be. And then when you got it where you want it, all you do is shove the reed, I mean the wedge block back in flush with the face of the insert, and it is going to be there any way you want it. So you can incrementally change, oh, God, in, in a matter of a couple, three thousandths, one way or the other, as good as your eyes are. You can move the reed assembly in and out and never lose its position in regards to the reed and the tone board. Now, this has eliminated any idea of having to play around with uh, trying to tune a call. Right. You know, that has probably got to be one of the most frustrating moments in any goose caller's day is when they suddenly find their, their goose call either falling apart or they've taken it apart and they're trying to retune it in the blind. And, I mean, there's some guys that can do it in their sleep, and there's other guys that they have to do it at the kitchen table with all the lights on. And, I mean, it's a nightmare. I mean, there's there's been well, a lot of John Taylor, that. who won the world with my call, the first short read to win the world in 1996, I asked John, I said, John, how long does it take you to tone a call for a particular contest? And he says, well, I'll average about two to two and a half days. He says, I have it very, very close lots of times, but it's never just where I want it. Exactly. So I said, well, how can you practice with that call? and still be ready at the contest. He says, I don't. He says, as you know, you made two calls that are duplicates for me. And he says, I tuned two of them to be sisters, and one has never touched it until the day of the contest. And uh, the other one I do all the practicing with. If I have to uh, redo it by putting a new read in whether I tune it to the master, the one I keep for the show or for the big contest. And uh, so there's, there's a, a pro that's, Won the uh, the world and is as champion of champions, and he says he averages two to two and a half days to put a read in the proper position for contest calling. So you can see the average guy that doesn't do it very often is is really up. Well, look at the response that uh, you're getting on the duck form for uh, for the uh, playing around with the guts on the short read goose call. You know, just hundreds, oh, yeah. and hundreds of people have the questions, thousands, I guess, really. Well, it, it, and it's one of the most frustrating things. I mean, I know when I bought my first short read goose call, and we were talking a long time ago before you started making stuff. Um, actually, no, about the same time. Uh, it, it was very frustrating because the first thing I did, as most people do, is they take it apart. Um, I played with it, and it sounded more like a predator call than a goose call. <laughs> you know, when I got done putting it back together. And it sucked, you know. Um, but, you know, the thing is that, that there's a lot of guys out there. I mean, I use a lot of guts that are that are pre-tuned. they got tabs on them and, and this and that to try to help out the first-time callers. And it's not so much just the first-time callers, but I'm finding out that there's a lot of guys out there that have been calling for a long time. They don't feel comfortable with, with tuning their guts, Okay. No, it's very and, difficult because you got a lot of variables in there, you know. Oh, yeah. The sideways, oh, yeah. the endwise, and then put it in there and, and be able to lock it in that position without it moving is just so frustrating. And most of the people make their guts uh, in molded machines, and, and the moldings uh, are not that accurate because temperature changes uh, change the the uh, shrinkage on the material and so on and so forth, and warpage right. is always a consistent thing. And when you put them in there and they have... Two to three thousandths play between the tone board 
and the bore that the uh, that the uh, uh, tone board goes into, uh, it's no wonder. And then the reed fits sloppily, so you've got three sloppy variables that you're trying to tune, like plus or minus a half a thousandth if you're really being critical. Right. Uh, it's very, very difficult to do. It takes a lot of luck. Well, and that's why I went through all that effort to devise a system that was Mickey Mouse proof, as I call it. Well, you know, and, and the other thing about goose calls is that after you get the gut set in there and it sounds awesome, they they tend to, God, how do I say this? They tend to kind of like squeeze themselves out of, of set. Do you understand what I'm saying? They, kind yes, of, they, well, they tend to move. That's because the, the amount of tolerance they allow themselves. Right. You know, there's typically uh, parts I've seen that people have made that you've got two, three, four thousandths clearance between the components that go in there, and that means there's just that much slop. Now, mm-hmm. I typically bore my holes in the in the uh, insert to plus five tenths, half a thousandth, minus nothing. And then we send on this grind the material for the tone board so it fits like a ring and fit into there. And then the reed die was made so that the reed, when it's sitting on top of the tone board, is almost a ringing fit. So nothing moves hardly. And mm-hmm. it was still very, very difficult to do before I put the pins in it, even with those close tolerances. So you can imagine if you have the slop in there to play with, it's uh, very, very close to impossible. Now, in fact, it's a tribute to the guys who really do it well, who've done it for years and years, because they're, they're pretty darn fast at it. Right. Who who would you say uh, of all the call makers out there that that I mean you've been doing this for twenty almost twenty five years for gosh sakes um, who's had a lot of influence on your on your call making? Well, not to seem uh, uh, egotistical, uh, I, no one because I never looked at what anybody else did. I did my thing the way I thought it should be done. Uh-huh. So I have nobody to look up to, just my hard work and my own case. Okay. Uh, and and I've been doing this a long time, and I haven't seen anybody that's duplicated non-sticking saliva calls like I make. Nobody with interchangeable reeds in various sizes. Nobody that can take and put a call together blindfolded in less than a minute, stick it in water or alcohol and water, which we use to clean usually, and blow it and be in tune. Uh, little things like that. There's just no way you can do it without holding those close tolerances. Right. So when people say, uh, well, custom calls are the only way to go, I don't think they know what they're talking about. The true value in the market today is calls that are made properly to proper design to uh, blueprints that were designed to make the parts and with tolerances on everything and that everyone is the same. Because that's a real value. Now the people out there have half the problems like that they had with their duck calls if they're made to the close tolerances. Right. And well, you know, CNCs are perfectly capable of it if you have the right mentality and right. desire to make them work that way. Well, see, your, your your passion. All right. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna digress here just a moment. Your 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 passion for calling and and call making has been um, what your skills that you've learned over you know several years uh, allows you to do in a machine shop with with uh, machines. That's okay. correct, yeah. Um, now, as a custom caller like myself and a custom call maker, I should say, like myself, I, you know, I, there is absolutely no way you could take two of my calls 
and put them side by side and say they're exactly the same. Even mm-hmm. if I made them both on the same night from the same stick of wood, there's there's no way because I mean there's just there's the human variable that you know you can't program that out of a call the way I make them. Okay, now what you do with calls and how you've made calls, I you know my hats off to you. I'm I'm just absolutely amazed. They they look awesome. I know my friend has one. He's never let me take it apart to look at it because he's afraid I'll jinx it or some crap like that. Tell him there's no no problem. You can put it back together in less than a minute. No, I know it's not a problem with the call. It's a problem with my friend. I I, I choose my friends poorly. Um, but you know the the fact of the matter is that that a handmade call. And when I say handmade, I'm talking about somebody, you know, you drill a hole through the wood, you stick it on the lathe, you, you turn it, you, you you sand it, you file it, you tone it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, if I, I may the interject for one second, Kelly, sure. the last man that made a call, to my knowledge, that was purely handmade was Vic Lodo when he burned the holes with a hot iron through Right. Now, this man did it without any tools, whittled everything. That's truly handmade. Nobody right. reaches that in any way with today. We still have lathes, we have drills, we have reamers, we have every kind of measuring instrument you can buy in the five and dime store. It's just, it's all available for anybody that has a passion for wanting to do it correctly. Right. I, I, I agree with you on that on that level, but I'm just talking about as far as a CNC machine versus versus, uh, you know, a call maker like myself, I don't have, I don't have all the fancy stuff and, and yada yada yada. It and does require fancy stuff. I will be the first to admit it. <laughs> I mean, no, what I meant is, is to do it without it is a very difficult task. Oh yeah. Because in fact, it, I wonder sometimes how people can. Well, I'll tell you a little story. One time I uh, was at Stuttgart and met uh, uh, Rick and Rich and Tone's uh, man. And I said, uh, he said, uh, what are you doing tomorrow morning? Which was Sunday. The contest was over that night. He said, why don't you come in and visit me? So I went in, and he said, would you like to watch me make a call? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Well, that surprised the heck out of me. Well, he bought acrylic blanks uh, with holes in them, and the OD was standard size and two given length. And he cranked that thing out in about an hour and a half, and I was amazed at how fast that man was using all hand-turning tools, but he was still using tools. And, of course, like you said, he wasn't paying attention to tolerances. He had calipers that were approximately where, you know, he wanted to be. And when the caliper went over the part, that was close enough. In fact, I think it took about two tons to shove the band on. He had so much press fit on the thing. (laughs) It was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But there's lots of ways to skin a cat. And uh, I take my hats off to people that do it that way. Uh, that's why my calls are not inexpensive. I, when I make a, even a, a prototype or a, uh, a call for people who are collectors or whatever, it's made to the same blueprints as I make on CNCs. Mm-hmm. But I do them on what we call hand machines. They're not the production uh, type CNCs with the computerized uh, programs and all that business. It's a matter well, I, of cutting and measuring and cutting and measuring until you get it where you want it. Right. Well, I, I didn't mean to like imply that they were less than or, or anything else. I'm just saying it's different, okay? Because no the, the amount of work that it took for you to get from, from where you started at the age of 13 to where you started making duck calls back in 1985, I mean, it took 60-some freaking years of, 
of knowledge, experience, and 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 just you know your 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 abilities <laughs> put into this to make to make it happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I I don't mean to take that away from you. I don't don't misunderstand. Oh no I, no I understand. When, that when I talk about guys, I'm that, just trying to show people the other side of the industry without without the CNC machines. Uh, uh, the calls of the quality that are coming out today would have to be two hundred and twenty-five, two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, Nobody no. could. That's that's the big difference. Right. So I, there are know, advantages to everything. And I agree. Advantages but you know what? I think I think the ones that really get on my last absolute nerve is the people that talk about you know oh I got a custom call from so and so over in Arkansas, you know, company over in Arkansas, and you know. What that boils down to is so and so went over there and picked out a uh, barrel made out of you know cocobolo and an insert made out of osage orange and you know they stuck a reed and a, and a piece of cork in it and it's, and it's custom you know they they fished an insert out of a barrel and they fished a, a you know a barrel out of a box <laughs> you know they call yeah, it custom well, and that's just, there's a lot of them do that because uh, I would say that probably. Fifty or sixty percent of all the calls made in the country on CNTs are probably made by three or four people in the country. Absolutely. The rest of them uh, uh, ship them out and have them made. Right now, hey, one more thing before we kind of start wrapping this up tonight. Okay, um, <laughs> I didn't get nearly the number of uh, emails uh, for you that I did for another recent guest on my show, but. Uh, Talk to me about green bananas. What's the story with the green bananas? I mean, everybody says that has emailed me from California about you coming on. They want to know about the green bananas. What's up with that? Well, the green bananas is at almost 83 in a couple of months. We don't buy green bananas in my house anymore because they never have time to ripen, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you become old as dirt. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Had you not told me your life story, and you know which I can relate to because knowing my father's story, you know when he was growing up in the same area that you did, um, I would never, never would have guessed that you were 83, ever. I swear you know, to God. I think I think working continuously is the secret to it. Really it keeps your mind occupied, and uh, there's a purpose in life. Absolutely. I mean, you're 80. You're 83 years old. You spend six days in the shop, nine hours a day. I, that that's just incredible. I mean, there are people that are <laughs> a third of your age that don't have that work ethic. Well, you know, not everybody has it, but then it's a beautiful thing to have. From it my is. Point. And of course, you live in the state of California, and you're getting ready to get nailed with all these huge taxes and stuff because of those people that don't have that same work ethic. But when I move to Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, Wichita's better. Kansas City's way overrated. You know, it really is. Well, I would, be, I would be, uh, I would be moving to wherever the ducks are. That's really the oh. objective of my life. I was born and raised in Redwood City, California, between San Jose and San Francisco. And the day I retired, practically, I had a uh, a condo up here in in uh, Paradise, California, which is close to Chico. Uh -huh. And what was that all about? I have the Feather River on one side. I have the Lake Almanor on the other side, and I have uh, Lake Orville beside that one, and I'm six miles to the Sacramento River with steelhead and salmon, and 550,000 acres of rice between Chico and Sacramento. So uh, I think the only thing that would fill that need for me probably is, is somewhere in Arkansas, Louisiana, 
or someplace right. else. So if I get kicked out of here, right. I'll be pulling a Wayne Betts and heading for Arkansas. <laughs> wow. Speaking of Wayne, if you're listening, Wayne, my condolences. I've been going to call you all day and haven't got to it. Sorry <laughs> to hear about your dad's death. Oh, geez. Who are you talking to? Wayne who? Wayne Betts. Oh, gosh. I'm Do you sorry. know Wayne? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I heard about his father passing away. Yeah. I, I was thinking, Wonderful I thought guy. you said Wade. I thought you were talking about my, my buddy over there in Colorado. My fault. Sorry. No problem. Um, man. Anyway, that's one of those awkward moments that you really don't know how to re- respond to. But uh, anyhow, um, you know, Joe, uh, where where do you see your call making business going from here? I mean, you you've you've talked about your use call. It's it's you know with, with the stops and stuff in it and everything. That, that's kind of the new thing coming down the road for you. Um, we talked about goose calling as far as California is concerned. In your part of the world, it's mostly speckle bellies out there. Um, have you got a lot of people looking at your goose calls in other parts of the world, or is it just kind of hard to, to get people to look at your stuff since you're out there? Uh, it's been difficult, uh, even though we were the first ones to win the short read. We have a call that's uh, as well or probably better made than any other goose call in the country, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the tones, as you know, uh, are all pretty much the same. Uh, a goose is a goose is a goose. Yep. And uh, we uh, we make them to very stringent uh, tolerances, and uh, we've played around with all the angles because we do make that soundboard also on a CNC. And uh, we've made them out of about every kind of material you can imagine. And... Uh, some of them are so soft that you have worn out guts inside of a few months with the guys that use them all the time. I've made them with acrylic, but they ring too high. I've made them out of brass. I've made them out of blackwood. I've made them out of, oh, God, you name it, probably 30 different materials, and most of them wasn't worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we make one now out of uh, out of a plastic that's, uh, that's not as hard as acrylic, but not so soft that it's going to... Uh, wear through in a matter of a few months. Uh, but we also have another service with our calls. We'll give you any stage of break-in you like with the call. We have a setup where we can cut that uh, mechanically uh, on the machine. So we can change the worn-in process to the point where if you want 10, 20, 30%, or all the way down to the channel, it doesn't make any difference. Wow. Now, do you... <laughs> but we we don't we don't advertise this or push it. If in the course of conversation somebody says, "Do you make world not guts?" We say, "No, we don't." But we can make anything you want just by adding it to the call. Now you don't sell your guts individually outside of your calls, do you? No, never sold a gut in my life. Uh, okay. Not not because I think uh, it's the only way to do it. I just don't think that they would take advantage of it with all the tolerances they have in their in right. their inserts. Uh, because if you took my guts and put them in there, you'd have the same problem. Not the ones with the dolls, but the others. And uh, I have my dimensions, and if they don't fit somebody else's, they think I have the problem when it's right. their problem. So uh, I know mine are made to standards uh, that are uh, unmatched by very few people. And if if somebody wanted guts, I'd say, well, I'm not in the selling gut business. Right. I'm in the duck call business. Or the goose call. Goose call. <laughs> well, that's that pretty awesome. Mean, that you can do that. 
That is pretty freaking awesome. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, I I think that, you know, if there is an opening for your products out there in the market right now, it's probably in the goose calls, you know. Oh, no question about it. I think if if it wasn't because of this type of small and lean operation that we have, uh, we don't have any marketing whatsoever other than uh, with the duck forum that that's to interchange of people's ideas and and our web page. Uh, other than that, it's word to mouth, word to mouth, and uh, and I'll tell you, this word to mouth is really spreading through the country now. Oh yeah, yeah. But the forum has had an awful lot to do with that as well as the web page. Well, you know, when when you look at the price, you know, just ask you straight up, all right? When you look at the price of your goose calls compared to some other goose calls out there, uh, you know, even like like the big ones, you know, like zinc and, and foils and grounds, um, yours are kind of pricey compared to them. I mean, how do you... I think to the contrary. I sell a short read goose call for $142 in okay. acrylic. Uh, uh, I, I think almost everybody's in that range. I make a spec call for $105. Uh uh, Redbone, I understand, gets what one hundred and eighty, two hundred dollars. Somebody told me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's all uh, subjective. It's what do you get for the money? You know. Right. It's uh, <laughs> those calls have documented blueprints that somebody in the future will be making them to those blueprints, and the name and the quality will go on. Right. Otherwise, I'll just bury the thing because it uh, almost have to have their blood signed for that <laughs> before I would release it in that form. I hear you, but I'm not going to quit for another four or five years. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I stand corrected. You know, when I was sitting here looking, when I was thinking about that, I was looking at your prices and stuff, and I was like, nah, they're really not that out of line. I mean, honestly, I mean, I've seen some goose calls that have sold for upwards of two hundred dollars a pop. That's correct. And you know. I, I just scratch my head. <laughs> yeah, look at them. They don't look any different than the rest of them that are molded with sloppy molded parts. No. Uh, you know, and I'm not knocking anybody in particular. I'm just talking about this. There's uh, a lot of junk on the market, and that's what, you, what you're paying top dollar for. In right. reality, uh, value, my God, my, my calls uh, uh, should be selling for $250 relative to what I see out there. I'm serious about that. I'm serious about that. You know, I know you are. <laughs> yep, absolutely. But uh, the fact that I make them on CNCs and make them correctly allows me to keep the price down to where they're competitive. Wow, that's <laughs> it's a philosophy. That's as far as it goes. <laughs> I'm right. I'm writing this price number down right now. Two hundred fifty bucks. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you for a duck call for the show, but I figured. You know, well. You, uh, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I tell you what, I am gonna do though. You know, sometime here in the near future, when I finally get everything caught up with all my Ducks Unlimited stuff and my Delta waterfowl stuff that I've committed to, God, I am such an idiot. I swear to God. I mean, I love, I love the work those guys do. Okay, I truly do, and I appreciate the fact that they think that enough of my calls to to want to get my stuff. But I always, always, always overcommit to those guys, and it always comes up at the same time of the year. You know, uh, when I finally get all this stuff caught up, I'm going to send you one of my calls so you can sit there and tear it apart and look at it and scratch your head and go, why am I looking at this piece of fire? I'll critique it for you. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) 
and I'll be kind. No, you won't. Uh, no, no. I wouldn't appreciate it. No, if you I would were. look at it objectively, and I, if I thought there was something that you should know that you don't know, and I'm not sure that I know anything that you don't know, I would oh, be glad Lord. to help you with it. I have no secrets. I have no secrets in this business. If anybody calls me tomorrow and says, "How would you do this?" I'll give them the whole full story on it. Yeah. Well, after them to accomplish it. After after you see one of my calls, you'll wonder why is this guy even in business? <laughs> <You know? laughs> hey, there's a place for everything. I don't care. You know, uh, you don't sell your calls for uh, on an average for one hundred and forty dollars either. You know. Oh, absolutely not. So there's no. there's a market for everybody. I know people. Yeah. Well, I have a little collection of about fifteen twenty calls in my drawer that. Uh, were uh, ten, twelve, fifteen dollar calls in their day, and uh, and I was always looking for the magic number for no nothing, <laughs> and it never happened. <laughs> no, it, it never it happened. Never does. It no. never does. No. You know the thing about it is, is that uh, everybody everybody puts price on what on what they think their stuff is worth, and you yeah. know no one should should judge from that. You know. Uh, <laughs> well, I think they can judge. That's their prerogative. You know, that's what free enterprise means in this country. Right. Is anybody can make anything at any price they want, uh, or give it away if they like, and uh, and there's no qualms about it. If I've uh, been successful in life and don't need the money today, why should I not make them for twenty dollars? Yeah. You know exactly. Because it's pride in ownership and pride in uh, in what you're doing and. Uh, I'll give it to my grandkids first. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, hey, Joe, I'll tell you what. It's getting to be about that late hour here in Wichita, Kansas. I know out there on the West Coast, you guys are still like, like what, 930? Yeah. 945, something like that. Anyway. Um, well, I guess we could go on for two hours. I'm sure uh, some, one of these days we're going to get together and we're just going to talk about all these different you things. You know what? I would love and to we do. could spend a day doing it without any problem. Absolutely. You know what? If you ever come out to this area, you're perfectly welcome to see everything I do and how I do it and why I do it. Well, thank you. It's an open book. I do it all the time. I appreciate that. You know, I might just take you up on that one of these bright days. But you know what? In the meantime, um, can I can I get you to commit to come back on the show some other time? Oh, sure, anytime. I don't know what we talked about. I would like to spend (laughs) at least a half an hour talking about this goose call. Okay, because I think I think. the general public out there, I mean, you know, just from what I hear from my customers, is that, you know, I want a call that's effective, number one. Number two, that works, that I can retune, you know, without spending an entire day screwing around with it. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And uh, I think that that's that's the important thing. I think people would enjoy that. Um but you know, if you if you wouldn't mind coming back on sometime, I'd really truly. Appreciate I'd love it. to. It's been my pleasure, and, and I'm willing and available anytime. All right, bud. I'll tell you what. It's been a great pleasure having you on. I I truly appreciate it, and uh, thanks for all the stories before the show. I mean, those, great. Those, I just hope that the people listening uh, can get a, a different perspective on how some people do things and what Joe Laris and his products about. I appreciate it, Joe. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thanks, man. Love you, bud. Be good. Bye-bye now. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot for joining in tonight. Uh, God, what an awesome show. Uh, I I appreciate you spending the time with us. I appreciate you uh, taking your night to to listen in and and have a good time with us. It was great. Um, 
we will have next weekend um, Al Woodard of THO, of, uh, THO Game Calls. Okay, um, He's going to be on, and I'll talk to you more about that later. Thanks again for, for tuning in. It, it has been a true pleasure. Bye-bye.